regardless of where you are in the world, these elephants and rhinos are, are, are your elephants. They, they might live in Africa, but they're still a part of a bigger global community. We are all sharing one planet. It's time to change the world. There's got to be a better way. It's time for something better. You feel like you can't really make a difference, but the fact is that you can. We're telling the stories of people who are changing the world and how you can help. You know, we just need more companies that are out there solving these problems. Businesses, nonprofits, artists, and individuals who have found a problem and then created a solution. If we want to have real impact, we have to do it together. You'll come away from every episode with action steps you can take to be part of that solution. We're never going to feel satisfied and happy if we just stay the same. We can each change the world every single day. People can actually come together and build a future for themselves along with other people. Our daily actions have a massive impact. So what will we do about it? We can remake the world. Because guess what? We can. Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan Gardner, and this is We Can Remake the World a podcast about people who are changing the world and how you can help. I want to start today's episode with gratitude. It's something we talk about a good amount on our show. You may remember actually one of our first episodes with Teddy Droseros, founder of Grateful Peoples, a nonprofit focused on bringing gratitude practices to students and adults too all over the world. Teddy has seen how gratitude can change lives, how it's changed his own life and the lives of thousands of the people he's worked with through Grateful Peoples. What I've discovered, and I think Teddy would agree, is that at the heart of gratitude is an ability to change any circumstance into something positive. We might not have everything we want, but we always have something to be grateful for. We may not have reached the end of this pandemic, for example, but we do have enough food to eat. We're lucky enough to have that. Some of us may not have reached the height of our careers yet or feel like we've fulfilled everything we want from our lives, but we do have relationships with friends and family to enjoy. We may not be able to travel anywhere in the world at the drop of a hat like we used to be able to a couple years ago yet, but we can connect with people from all over the planet in an instant through social media and learn from each other and expand our horizons in other ways. We may not have changed our world in every way that we want to, to reflect our values for human rights, equality, and the protection of our planet above everything else, but we can see progress being made every day if we look for it. And we have countless ways to support people and projects and organizations who are making a difference. Today, try not to focus too much on what you don't have or what you wish could be different about your life or about our collective experience. Today, do your best to find as much in your life as you can to appreciate. Spend some time feeling grateful for the simple things. Go step outside and just be grateful for the breeze on your skin or be grateful for the cycles of nature which take care of everything without us having to do anything. Be grateful that you have enough money to treat yourself to a nice meal here and there. Be grateful for a pet that you have and love. Or be grateful for a friend who you know always has your back. And let that gratitude color your picture of the world today. And for as many days as you can maintain it. Rather than allowing the news or the challenges you might see in your life or the lives around you to dictate how you feel. 
Take today and find a few reasons to feel good and try to make it last as long as you can. We're glad you're here. Thanks for being with us. Do you remember being a kid and how magical the animal kingdom felt? Do you remember watching movies like The Jungle Book, maybe, and fantasizing about someday seeing an elephant or a tiger or a lion in person? Remember how mysterious and exciting those animals seemed? And how incredible it felt to go to a zoo when you were young and to see some of these animals in person? Now, could you imagine if the generation below you or the generation below that one learned about these amazing animals, elephants, rhinos, tigers, lions, gorillas, orangutans, and others, as animals that no longer share the planet with us, animals which are now extinct? Imagine if your children or grandchildren or nephews and nieces or the children of your family friends, whatever kids are in your life, Imagine them coming to us, asking us what it was like to live in a world with so many amazing creatures, with these exotic and mysterious beings. Imagine the heartache that we would experience in telling them that we were the ones who allowed these creatures to disappear while we were here. It's no secret that many of the most amazing and beloved wild creatures around the world are in danger of disappearing. At the start of the 20th century, well over a million rhinos roamed Africa. Poaching had always been a lurking threat, but it became a full-blown epidemic in the 70s and 80s in the 20th century, as the demand for rhino horn, especially in countries in Asia, primarily soared. By the year 2000, poachers had killed 98% of Africa's black rhino population, which has now started to recover, but that's massive loss. It's estimated that in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, there were over 26 million elephants roaming the continent of Africa. Isn't that amazing? But by 1976, due to habitat loss from developing the lands in Africa and due to poaching for the ivory trade, which grew exponentially in the 19th and 20th centuries, the number of elephants had gone down to 1.34 million elephants. That's almost 25 million elephants lost. Today, the estimated number of elephants in Africa is just above 400,000 on the entire continent. Thankfully, demand for rhino horn and ivory has gone drastically down, and these are no longer some of the primary threats facing these wild creatures. But there's still a lot to do. And I think many of us wonder, what? What can we do? How can we be part of the solution of something that feels so distant from us for many of us? Our guest today will help us answer that question. We're joined by Melissa Shaka, Executive Director for the United States for the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. The Sheldrick Trust has become known around the world as one of the foremost nonprofits focused on conservation and protection of wildlife in Eastern Africa, in Kenya specifically. We'll hear about the work the Sheldrick Trust does on the ground in Kenya in detail from Melissa, who leads operations for the organization in the U.S., but is also very close to how things play out on the ground in Africa. The Sheldrick Trust cares for hundreds of elephants and rhinos who have become orphans due to various challenges that these species face in the wild. 
And the Sheldrick Trust also cares for and protects the Savo National Park in Kenya, which, as a protected area, allows these wild animals to continue to have spaces to roam and raise their families and grow in numbers again. Melissa and the Sheldrick Trust team want you to know that you can make a difference here. You can be part of the solution that leads to growing numbers of wildlife around the world. Stick around to hear more about the amazing work the Sheldrick Trust is doing to inspire more and more of us to not only respect, but protect and care for other members of our global community. So I have Melissa Shaka, Executive Director for the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust USA with me today. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us, Melissa. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, of course. So I'd love to start with the basics about the Wildlife Trust. If you wouldn't mind maybe sharing a bit about the organization itself and its mission. Sure. Uh, So the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust has been in operation for over four decades. And even prior to that, um, it was originally started by uh, Daphne Sheldrick, who was married to David Sheldrick, who back in the 40s was the original warden that set up the Sabo uh, Conservation Area in Kenya, where all wildlife pretty much uh, roams and resides. So back in the 40s, it was just complete wilderness. It had not been touched. It was just, um, you know, they're wild free. And uh, he actually was the first person to gazette that out and create a national park that Kenya now enjoys, which is approximately the size of West Virginia. So it's a really large area um, that wildlife calls home. And so together, they worked on that reserve for many years, about 25 years before um, David unfortunately passed away uh, from a heart attack. And Daphne carried on his legacy for wildlife conservation and and started creating a foundation uh, in his name called the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. And why Daphne is so well known is she was actually the first person to hand raise successfully a baby elephant and rhino. Um, The milk formula for them is incredibly uh, it's very specific, it's very delicate, and it was it's very difficult to hand raise a baby elephant um, because of their constitution and their physiology. So she is world renowned for her work with elephants and rhino orphans. And for the last 40 years, um, the trust has been dedicating to raising and returning wildlife uh, that have been orphaned to the reserve, but it's now expanded far past that, which is all about all measures that encompass conservation for Kenya. So we really are, are a full global organization dedicated to elephant and rhino and really all wildlife conservation there in Kenya on the reserves and doing whatever we can to ensure that they'll still be here for many years to come. Yeah, one element of the trust that I find really kind of admirable and amazing is the commitment to rehabilitating animals that need support. And then, as you mentioned, releasing them back into the wild. And if you look on social media for the Wildlife Trust, you see these incredible videos of these animals being rescued, and then you can kind of follow their journey. Would you speak about that sort of as a policy and a philosophy for the organization and why that's so important and you know, what's needed to to carry out a program like that of rehabilitation and release. 
Sure. I mean, you know, of course, we never want to see an orphaned elephant or rhino. Um, You know, we would like for them to be with their families always. But the reality is, is that elephants and rhinos face a lot of threats today. And, you know, when you when you are caring for an elephant or a rhino, there's so much time and effort that goes into the process of rehabilitating them. I mean, the elephants are milk dependent for three years. So if you find a baby elephant that's lost its family for myriad of reasons, it won't survive on its own unless there is human intervention from, of course, experienced and trained people like our staff to bring them in and hand raise them. So it is a long-term process to take an elephant from its infancy all the way to where it's ready to be reintegrated back into the wild. So, you know, once we have uh, an elephant or a rhino in our care, we are all in. Um, We dedicate 100% to hand raising them until they're ready to go. And then the idea is, is that they're reintegrated back into the wild where they can go on to live wild lives and have wild born babies and families of their own. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's the, the most remarkable part about what we do is years and years of investment in one life, which every life matters to us. Um, one day turns into a new life of, of legacy for new, new offspring. And, Right now, we have, as far as what's known to us, we have 38 wild-born babies, which means those are all offspring of our orphans that have gone on, graduated, returned to the wild. And every time they come back and visit their human families that cared for them for so many years to show them their new babies, and they're so proud, and it's it's so sweet to see how they really have gone on to forge these wonderful new lives and families, but yet they always remember the love and care they received from us prior. It's so amazing. And it just makes me appreciate how complex and intelligent animals like elephants are. The fact that they they know where they spent that very important and vulnerable time of their life and they come back and show off their offspring and connect with those humans. I mean, what's that process like to, you know, rehabilitate such a complex animal and then sort of shepherd them into reintegrating into the wild where they have to, I would assume, build new relationships with with other wild elephants because they travel in packs. And, you know, what's that process like? Yeah. So um, basically what happens is, is when an elephant or rhino are orphaned, we get word of that either from someone that has been contacted near a community or someone that's maybe our pilots are flying over the reserve and see an orphaned elephant. Um, Because if you see a baby elephant, something's wrong because they will never be alone. Um, Elephant herds stay together for life. All the females stay together for life. So if a baby is on its own, something's wrong. Um, So once we intervene, see that the animal actually needs to be rescued, doesn't have a family. Um, We bring them back to the nursery where we care for them for about three years when they are still every three hour milk dependent. They're like newborn babies, essentially the way humans are fed around the clock every couple hours. Baby elephants are the exact same way. They're also very emotional. So you have to have someone with them 24 hours. Um, Our keepers actually sleep in stockades with the elephants because they need that connection at all times. Um, So they are cared for 24 hours a day around the clock feedings every three hours. And they are also a part of that nursery herd. They're all around the same age that are there together. So they grow up together a little bit uh, for those first few years. And then when they are around three-ish years of age, they are ready to be transitioned over to what we call a reintegration unit. Um, We have three of those and they're kind of the best way I can explain. It's kind of like a halfway home. Um, They are not ready to be released into the wild, um, but they are still making their way. And what happens is they get moved down to those uh, reintegration units that are down on the reserve. And that's where they're starting to meet a little bit older elephants 
elephants that are also kind of still in the program. And at this stage, they're actually very much, um, you know, kind of leading the way. Our keepers are there to oversee, to guide them, but they're choosing to go out into the brush every day, forage for food, take their mud baths. They're certainly on a schedule, but they are very much on their own in the sense of that if they want to go and be wild, they can at any time. Um, we are not a zoo. We are not a sanctuary. We just are there to sort of assist them, help them along until they're ready to be totally off of milk and ready to join um, another herd back in the wild. And typically what they do is they're joining up with some of our orphan graduate herds that have gone on to have wild babies. They, they will become a part of those herds. And sometimes other wild herds as well will adopt. So um, I think that's one of the most remarkable things about elephants is there's never been a situation that an elephant hasn't been accepted. Um, they are always warmly embraced by their species. In fact, there's many times where our orphan graduates that are living wild come back to see the new, the new recruits and the new babies, and they can't wait to take them. They want desperately to adopt them into their herd. And we often have to explain that they're not, you know, they're not ready yet. They're still on milk. Um, so it's a, it's a process, but I think it's just, we can learn so much from elephants and they're accepting nature, they're forgiving nature, the way that they um, are always ready to embrace their own kind. I, it hadn't occurred to me that elephants themselves adopt. I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm getting a little bit emotional right now thinking about it. The fact that this organization is doing this work to adopt these animals which need care and protection, and then the, the elephants then adopting them again. I think mm -hmm. that is so beautiful and something that I hadn't ever been exposed to or thought about. Um, that's amazing. And it honestly, to me, I think just speaks to the accomplishment of Daphne Sheldrick and what she created and these techniques that I'm sure have been refined over time. I mean, before we get into maybe some of the challenges that these animals face and what creates this need for adoption, would you speak a bit more about Daphne Sheldrick? I mean, she was a dame of the British Empire. She's, you know, highly regarded. And uh, and I'd love to learn more about kind of who she was and and, and how she found this path. Yeah, I mean, Daphne is one of the most remarkable people. I feel so fortunate I had the chance to know her and and uh, and understand a lot of what was, you know, her philosophy and, and how she became what she was. Um, you know, the neatest thing about Daphne, she was, of course, Kenyan born, um, you know, very humble person, but really never expected uh, to be who she ended up being. Um, you know, Daphne was there always working with wildlife and alongside in, 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 you know, on the African reserve, but, you know, it started with just one animal that needed help. <laughs> and she just sort of did what, if, if she were here, she would tell you, I, I just did what anybody else would do. Um, I just tried my best. I tried different things to see if I could save this one life. And it didn't always work, but she never gave up. She kept trying to find any way that she could when an, a new elephant or rhino was in need, what could she do to try and save the life? So she tried and tried and tried, finally got it right. Um, and that was with the discovery of, of coconut oil. Um, adding that to the formula is what made all the difference in pulling that very first uh, animal through. So um, once she figured that out, she kind of just became known throughout Kenya as the, you know, this, 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 elephant lady, you know, like they, that would, you know, would be able to kind of take in these animals. So the more and more that she was able to do this, it started with one, then it became two, then four, and, you know, just grows over time. And, you know, um, I think Daphne is 
an absolutely remarkable example of what one person can do and be to make such a difference. I mean, she would, you know, even when when she passed away, she couldn't believe the growth that the trust had experienced, the and two, the the support from around the world of people really getting behind what she was doing and trying to really just save lives um, and doing what she could for that one life because like to like to her and everyone else, you know, it's it's that one life matters and um, and you're going to fight for that. And just through her perseverance, her dedication and her kind, gentle spirit, she was really able to forge that path that helped all of us learn how to properly rehabilitate wildlife and what to do to make sure it's going to be successful in the wild. And we're forever grateful to her. Yeah, I love what you said about just the power of of one person's choice to do what they can where they are. That's something we talk about a lot on our show. And we really believe that all of us have the potential to make an impact that large. You know, whether or not we build a nonprofit that grows to a global size or not, we we still have impact with every choice we make, with every action we take. So I love that. Um, for, for anybody who may not be familiar with the Sheldrake Wildlife Trust, would you speak a bit about the size of it? Because it is, it's a highly respected, very, you know, large organization with a lot of resources and it has a lot, it makes a lot of impact. And maybe just a quick description of the impact that the Sheldrake Trust is able to have and some of the partners that the organization works with. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we certainly have time on our side. You know, we've been doing this now for over 40 years. So within that time span, we've really been able to grow from just what Daphne started as hand raising and hand rearing, you know, baby elephants into a multifaceted conservation organization. Um, We are no longer just a husbandry based cause. It's now anti poaching. It's aerial surveillance with, you know, pilots. We have a whole entire habitat preservation program that's looking to preserve the reserve and the land that's there and help with reforestation. Um, We care deeply about educating the community and involving people locally and globally, really, into understanding what the plight of the elephant and wildlife is, what they're facing today, what their challenges are. Um, We have a mobile vet teams that are out on the reserve just medically treating animals that need attention. So we've really come at conservation from a multifaceted approach. Um, And and we do believe that that is the approach that's required to really um, make a difference long term. You can't just do one piece of the puzzle. You have to do all of it working together simultaneously to really have the impact that we're after. So, um, you know, the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust has grown to be pretty much the the leading cause in terms of elephant and rhino conservation in in Kenya when it comes to protection of habitats and the the wildlives there. And um, we have tremendous success each year with just raising over 260 elephants uh, in our timeframe and returning them uh, and caring for them. We have uh, 18 to almost now 20 that are coming on board, anti-poaching teams that are protecting the reserve. Um, And again, like I said, 60,000 kilometers of of wildlife spaces that we are protecting in partnership with Kenya Wildlife Services um, as well. So really just doing everything we can from that sort of concerted effort to save wildlife and their spaces for generations to come. Yeah, there's at least sort of one haven in on the continent of Africa in Kenya that the Sheldrick Trust is really working to protect and to maintain and to to manage. Um, would you speak maybe now about some of those challenges that this that elephants and rhinos specifically, and you know, I would assume much of the wildlife in in Kenya. Um, faces. And um, you mentioned the anti-poaching unit and protecting of these lands. What are some of the challenges that these animals face and how does the Sheldrick Trust, you know, do their best to mitigate some of those challenges? 
Sure. You know, it, it's, it's, it's tricky. There's so many challenges that are facing wildlife today, all of them essentially human caused. Um, you know, our biggest problems right now are what's going on with climate change and human wildlife conflict. Um, you know, their environment as a whole is just becoming more and more compromised. Um, whether that's from a lack of water, the lack of, it's really more a lack of food than it is a lack of water because the rainfall creates the food. So even if there's water running in the river, that doesn't mean they can eat. So there's a big challenge with climate change. Uh, We have fires that are spreading throughout the reserve. They're really learning how to have to adapt to this changing world that we all are are facing now. So climate change is a big issue. Human wildlife conflict is a big issue because as human population continues to grow, it's pushing more and more into these wild spaces that the wildlife calls home. Um, So that is, again, creating more and more issues. Elephants can walk anywhere from 25 to 50 miles a day. So when you think about that kind of space, that's like us doing a marathon every day. Um, it's a lot of space and a lot of land and they eat a lot. And they, there's a lot that's required for, for even just one elephant. So, you know, just with that inherent growth of, of humans, it's just causing problems for wildlife. So we run into that issue. You know, poaching is, is often what gets the headlines. Uh, you know, it's certainly people think that that's, a major issue. And it certainly hasn't gone away by any means. It's certainly still an an issue that we must always stand guard against. But luckily, we've seen a significant drop, particularly in the areas where we work. Poaching is really not the main piece of the conversation. It's still there, more so for game, like smaller game, like your antelope-based species, where people are coming on, you know, to the reserve to to look for like game meat. Um, It's not so much an issue with the big animals like your elephants and rhinos as it used to be. But nevertheless, we work very hard to safeguard against that. And I like to think that it's because of our teams and because of our work that we aren't seeing the issue. Um, I mean, just a significant drop, 97% drop in poaching in the last 10 years. So that is very much attributed to our work as well as KWS's work as well. Uh, so those are just a few things for sure um, that the elephants are, are facing. And so we're always having to kind of pivot and, and work with what new challenges arise to try and protect them long term. What do you think some of the lessons learned of the Sheldrick Trust and in partnership with some, some of the organizations in Kenya? What are some of the lessons learned that could maybe be applied more widely, either, you know, across Africa or in other wild areas in Southeast Asia or, you know, South America? Are there any programs or philosophies that you would like to see duplicated that you think could serve other wildlife communities? I think government partnership is huge. Um, you know, every country in Africa is is different. Um, Africa being a continent uh, with many countries, every country has different resources, different government policies, different politics. Um, I, I think part of the reason that we're so successful in Kenya and Kenya as a whole is is so much more well known for their their empathy towards wildlife is because they respect it and want to protect it um, because, of course, all these reserves and national parks are government owned. So a big part of our success is, again, because David was the original founding warden of Savo and Daphne working alongside him. We've had such a tight relationship with KWS for for many, many years now. We trust each other. We work well together. Um, I think it's that relationship that's really helped us be successful there. So I would say step one is 
other parts of, you know, Africa or anywhere, you know, if, if you've got, where are the animals and, and who is really responsible for protecting them? And how can you forge partnerships and relationships where the buy-in is the same, where governments have just as much interest in protecting that wildlife as other maybe NGOs uh, do for their own reasons. And I think Kenya does a good job of recognizing that, you know, elephants are worth 86 times more alive than they are dead just from the value that they bring in from tourism. So countries that understand that understand that, goodness, you know, if we don't have wildlife for people to see on safaris, people are going to stop coming here. There's not going to be anything to see. And they understand that it's in just as much their best interest to protect wildlife from a financial position as it is from just a personal, you know, uh, endeavor of, of wanting to just do the right thing and protect wildlife. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, certainly resources are what you need. You have to have support to do these things. And, you know, the support that we've received globally is a, is a long time and a long effort of, of things that have been put in place for, for many years. But I think it's also about just helping to tell stories. Um, you know, we have the benefit of, you know, when the orphans come in our care, you know, we do name them, we do tell their background, we do explain what's happening to them through the foster program that we offer, um, you know, to help people be a part of the journey. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of our biggest strengths is just our, our ability to invite people in for the ride and just to kind of include them um, in what we're doing uh, with with each with each mission, whether it's a, vet, a mobile vet treatment or whether it's a anti-poaching sting operation or it's, you know, just rescuing a baby elephant and bringing them in and starting their life with us. I think people feel a part of what we're doing. And I think that's really a big part of what has made us successful. I think your organization does really an amazing job with that. I've adopted a few animals through the Sheldrick Trust, a couple elephants and a rhino, I think. And being part of that, you really do feel like you're part of the story. And, you know, of course, you're giving monetarily. So you know, it's like you see exactly what you're supporting and how. But beyond that, that piece it's just you feel like you're involved like you feel like you're you are part of the unfolding of you know this life and as you said every one of these animals are individuals and they're complex and they have a history which they remember and they have complex relationships and so it is beautiful to be part of that i really think you do a wonderful job of maintaining that so I think some people around the world would say, why should we care about wildlife? Why should we care about these animals who are on another continent? You know, And of course, there are a lot of animal lovers out there. A lot of people, I think, more every day are understanding that we have to protect you know, nature and wildlife as best we can and as much as we can. But you know, if you wouldn't mind, help make it real for folks who aren't as tuned into these stories as far as, you know, <clears throat> why these animals and these spaces matter, not just for tourism or for, you know, for the photo opportunities, but, you know, why, why does it matter to protect these, these creatures in these spaces? Yeah, uh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think ultimately it's also to remembering that regardless of where you are in the world, these elephants and rhinos are, are, are your elephants. They, they might live in Africa, but they're still a part of a bigger global community, um, you know. So if you love elephants or you love wildlife, this just happens to be where they live. But you can still do your part to help protect them. And at the end of the day, this we are all sharing one planet. Um, you know, this is our all of this is our our own journey, our own experience. And elephants, rhinos, lions, cheetahs—they everything, every life has a right to live. 
um, is how we feel about it. And it has a right to be respected and to coexist with us. Um, you know, they're here at the same time we are, and we just all need to find ways to, to coexist because it's just adds a bit of a richer value, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine a world without elephants or imagine a world without rhinos? I, I would, I, I would really just be so brokenhearted for future generations that we've had the chance to experience wildlife. But imagine if they don't imagine if it's just like when we open a book to look at a dinosaur and wonder, gosh, what would it have been like to see a pterodactyl or what would it have been like to see a brontosaurus? Imagine if the next generation says the same thing. Uh, You know, I, I think that is enough of a compelling reason for those of us now to say, let's do what we can to keep them here so that our world does remain the rich place that it once was and that it's still here and can be protected and respected and and a part of our world. Um, You know, not just because it's a great photo opportunity, but because these are real sentient, smart beings. They think like we do. They have feelings like we do. They love their families in the same way that we do. And so I think it's about just honoring that we have within us is also existent in other species. And let's do our part to make sure that they get to have the same journey that we're on. I think that's so true. I mean, I think we can see ourselves in the animal kingdom and especially in animals as complex and intelligent as elephants and rhinos. And we learn about ourselves by interacting with these creatures. You hear a lot of stories about the power of interacting with an animal like an elephant, sometimes a horse. You hear stories like that, too. Or, And I think children get this, that you know, animals are part of the global community, kind of mm-hmm. as you said. And I think the more that the rest of us, us adults, adopt that and act from that, you know, I hope we'll see more and more people jumping on board to support organizations like the Sheldrick Trust and really preserving this this life on this planet, which is part of this community that we have. And, you know, on another interview we did recently with a, with a conservationist, he said, without these wild animals, if we lose them, it often means we've lost their habitats, which means we've lost a piece of the earth too, which is then contributing to climate change. And, you know, it's, it's part of the ecosystem, which keep thing, keeps things in balance. And Absolutely. we you have know, to be mindful of exactly. that. Exactly. And Daphne would have said the same. She says, when we lose elephants, we lose a part of us, um, a part of our own humanity. And it's just a, a moral obligation to preserve life the way that it was before we stepped on planet here and to try and do that for future generations to, to just have a similar, um, you know, coexistence, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So you alluded to the safari aspect, of course, of, of, many people traveling to Africa for that purpose. And the Sheldrick Trust, I know, does some work to sort of create eco-friendly tourism on the reserve itself. And I think there are a couple camps, uh, Atumba Hill Camp and Galdesa Camp, I found while I was doing a little bit of research, but I'm sure there are more. And I would love to hear more about those programs and sort of what the experience is like for tourists and what sort of values are built into the programs that the Sheldrick Trust maintains through those. Sure. Yeah, you know, the the ecotourism lodges um, were really not part of the plan originally at all. Um, you know, we never imagined we'd be in a place where we were in a position to help people come and stay at a location where they can experience a little bit of the work that we do. Um, it came out of an idea of because uh, the reintegration units that I mentioned being down on the reserve are not accessible inside the national park without, you know, being attached to our operations. So we created an opportunity where there could be these little lodges kind of, uh, they, they sleep 12 to 16 people. They're not huge by any means. We're very conservative about our, you know, our footprint and, and what kind of, 
you know, experience we're able to provide back. But we really wanted to be able to give people the chance, particularly foster parents of ours, the chance to see that second stage of reintegration uh, that we've worked so hard to get the elephants to and then watch as they're kind of moving off into the wild and, and interacting with wild elephants. So we created some eco lodges that uh, really the way that it works is you stay there. And the idea is, is that the funds that go into those eco lodge vacations or stays, those funds are then going back into conservation. So after we are, you know, of course, pay the expenses, it starts funding projects like our habitat preservation. It helps us create fence lines uh, along natural borders where communities and wild spaces start to, uh, to touch into each other. It helps us rehelp with reforestation of areas that can benefit from additional vegetation. Um, it's just right back into the mission. So, you know, people are getting the opportunity, one, to experience our mission a little bit more intimately. Um, they're also getting the chance to see our work uh, in a different way, but also their, their stay is contributing back to conservation, which I think makes people feel really good about their visit. Yeah, absolutely. I'd also be curious to know, have you had the chance, and I assume that the answer is yes, but have you had the chance to travel to Kenya to to be on these grounds? And what's that experience like to, to visit and interact with these animals and to see some of the work that the organization's doing on the ground? Yeah, I, I'm so fortunate. Um, I do get to go to Kenya, you know, once, twice a year to visit our ground teams, visit our teams there, our projects, take a look at um, not only what we've been doing, but also the growth and the, uh, you know, the plans for the future and, and be a part of those conversations about where we're headed and what's working, what's not. But for the most part, things are working really well uh, for us. But, I, you know, when I when I visit you know, every time I learn something new, every time I see something different about an elephant, and I am constantly just in awe of, of their personalities, the way they are so embracing of one another, the way that they are so forgiving of humans. And, you know, you've got some of these elephants that have been orphaned at the hands of humans, yet they understand that these keepers, these people that are there for them are, are good ones and are there to help them and to be a part of their family. And they're, uh, it, it's just remarkable the way that they can kind of let go of some bad, you know, bad experiences and forge a path forward. Um, you know, it's just, it's also just remarkable to see the growth of the trust. Um, you know, we've been able to continue to expand our influence each and every year. Um, you know, we are now uh, with the number of teams that we have, the number of areas that we're working with within Kenya, we are a real game changer when it comes to conservation across the country of Kenya. And I think that's it's a really interesting piece and, and special piece about it is that as we grow, we're always reinventing ways that we can better protect wildlife and ways that we can work with the community to to keep the species safe. Um, so it's um, yeah, it's, it's it's a wonderful experience to go see the work that's taking place and um, you know just to be a part of the mission. It's definitely a goal of mine to get to Kenya and to visit the grounds of Savo um, and um, and see some of these programs at work because the small piece that you get as a foster parent is is really quite impactful already. And I just can't imagine what it's like to be actually there. Um, would you speak actually just a little bit about what is causing some of these animals to be orphaned as poaching has gone down? And, you know, of course, habitat and encroachment on these protected lands is a factor, but what would you say are some of the leading causes of 
the the dismantling of herds or you know the death of these these young ones parents mm-hmm. yeah uh, certainly uh, you know we do still um, you know there are still time to time not very often we do still have orphans that come in with their parents having been poached um, elephants are with us for usually around 10 plus years before they make that transition back into the wild so many of the ones we're still caring for are victims of poaching many of them um, are still in that process the newer ones that are coming in um, you know just recently a couple of years ago it was a terrible terrible drought out. Very little water in Kenya, so we'd find many calves, uh, you know, next to their, you know, their their dead mothers that had passed away because of lack of water, lack of food, and so they're just on their own at that point. Some of them same, just baking in the hot sun. They're they're they've lost their families. Parents have died um, because they're just again, it's a climate, it's a major climate issue. Um, mm-hmm. We do see human wildlife conflict as an issue. You know, occasionally, if if commu- there's lots of communities that are that are uh, that are coming up against their development is right where the national park boundary is, but there's no fence line. These are just invisible you know, gazetted areas. So of course, an elephant or rhino has no idea that that's a problem. You know, they're going to just move themselves into the communities. And that's becoming more and more of a problem as human population grows and encroaches on that area more and more. So um, that can be an issue as well. If there's a retaliation against uh, an elephant of some kind, and the the calf is separated, the mother is killed, those things can happen um, that would cause an an animal to be orphaned. those are just a handful of things. And sometimes it's natural causes. Sometimes we do find elephants that are there with their, their mothers that have passed away. And it doesn't seem to be any issue other than something internal. Um, it could have been a virus. It could have been a sickness. It can be sometimes inconclusive. So um, it's a, it's a really a variety of, of things that can happen. But um, no matter the cause, we're there to step in to save that life and to hand raise them till they're ready to, to return on their own with other elephants. That, that second piece that you brought up just reminded me of what we were speaking about earlier as far as a global community. When we think about climate change, I think humans tend to think about what it means for them and what mm-hmm. it means for rising ocean levels in certain regions that will be affected by that or extreme weather and how it affects us. But really, this global climate change problem is a growing problem for the entire global community. So animals like elephants and other wildlife who rely on consistency and weather patterns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that elephants have a long memory of, you know, past treks and areas where mm-hmm. there are, because there's consistently water, consistently food. When that starts to change for the first time in 40 years, that has consequences. Mm-hmm. And we really have to think about solving this problem, not just for us, but for the entire global community. Exactly. So I'd like to talk also about some of the positive points that you've seen. Uh, You know, poaching thankfully has gone down. What are some of the other points of hope and some of the things that you're seeing that, you know, where the needle is moving in in a better direction for, for these animals and for conservation? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think in regards to the poaching, you know, poaching has gone down, but a lot of that is because of the global pressure that was placed on many of these markets, uh, the China market, uh, the Asian markets, the U.S. market, many, you know, less than five five years ago, really, um, to shut down these ivory factories and to really put in place better laws to protect, uh, you know, the these, these animals through banning the sale of ivory, banning the sale of rhino horn. Um, U.S. came up with its own federal ban. Even individual states have gone on to ban the sale of ivory and rhino horn. China shut down its factories. So that was only just a few years ago. And that was largely due because people turned on to it and said, you know what, this is unacceptable. Um, We cannot 
stomach the idea that elephants and rhinos are being killed and will likely be extinct in our lifetime, not even in two decades, if this doesn't stop. So because of that, that caused the demand to go down. The poaching, it's not worth it for poachers anymore. It's, it's, it's hard to poach, actually. Um, so, you know, if it, the money isn't there, they're not going to be incentivized to do it. So I think for me, that, that really gives me a lot of hope that things like global warming and climate change that are now probably our biggest issue facing this generation to have time to act. I do feel that, you know, when we, when humans decide something is important, change can happen. And I I would like to see that same kind of response we saw for elephants and rhinos with poaching to take place on a more global scale when it comes to environment issues. Um, Because that's really long term going to be the major game changer and whether or not elephants and rhinos and and, many wild species are even here at all. Yeah. No, I think that's so important. And yeah, for for anybody who doesn't know, rhino horn is a folk medicine in China, and many people believe that it had a lot of health benefits. And even though I think a lot of scientists have proven that it's basically just, you know, carotene or something like keratin, keratin, yeah, which is essentially the same material that our nails are made out of, it, it, it doesn't have special health benefits, but there was a perception. And so it contributed to this, you know, this, this poaching, this, this massive demand. And it's amazing how quickly it's turned around because mm-hmm. I remember, even I remember not that long ago that that was a big concern and now it's less so. And mm-hmm. I think it speaks to the power of awareness mm-hmm. and how quickly awareness can lead to change. Exactly. So I think that's great. So next, I'd love to hear a little bit about the future of the organization. You know, you alluded it, you mentioned it earlier, sort of the plans for the future and for the growth of the organization and its impact. Would you speak about that vision and sort of how the organization sees itself growing? Yeah, you know, we are so fortunate to have our, it's actually Daphne's daughter, Angela Sheldrick. She's our CEO for the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, who born and raised in the dirt of Kenya, running along barefoot alongside rhinos and and elephants as a baby. And and her kids are are doing the same. So you've got this long-term legacy of family experience that really understands the landscape of Kenya wildlife and what's really needed as as solutions to preserve them long-term. And what we really see see is it's really going to be all about land. Um, it's going to be about protecting, preserving, and securing land for these animals to roam that just goes untouched because the, the biggest problem is human encroachment. And as you know, as humans grow and the governments decide, well, we'll just cut off this piece of land or maybe we'll cut off this a little more, these pathways that animals, that elephants need to migrate between different reserves are getting narrower and narrower. And so our biggest issue right now is wanting to buy land. It's wanting to fence uh, national the boundaries of the national park with unshortable human and wildlife proof fencing so that people can't get in, but also wildlife doesn't necessarily get out into those areas where it's already sanctioned for humans. Um, So we're working very hard to protect borders and establish more actual physical, tangible borders, um, securing land where we can reforest them, create those food sources for wildlife. Um, You know, I think we'll always have, you know, as many teams as we think make sense to protect the animals and and with mobile vet units and anti-poaching teams and and the the aircraft and pilots that we have, we will always have that element of maintenance, I think. Um, But really the long-term goal is education, making sure people value their lives and value their wild spaces and, and, and respect wild life uh, within just the local communities to understand that they can benefit from making sure these animals are here and protected, but also just really protecting the physical land itself, um, I really see as our, our biggest next step. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What are some of the ways that folks around the world can support the Shelter Trust if they don't already? You know, what are some of the key ways that they can contribute to the organization's mission? You know, I mean, of, of course, donations are always going to be the thing that helps drive the work we're, we're already doing. And we, we try to make it very easy and in, in inviting for people through our Adopt an Elephant program or foster program where you can actually, um, you can select one of our baby elephants that we have. We have, you know, over 80 right now that we're still hand raising and caring for. So it's kind of fun to go on, pick your elephant, um, you know, that you'd like to follow along with their story. Maybe one story speaks more to you than another and select an elephant to uh, adopt. It's it's only $50 a year and you get monthly updates that whole time. You get access to private material like keepers diaries, special videos. Um, you know, those are, I, th- I think that's a great way to start. I think that's sort of the gateway in my mind is how you kind of come into the trust and start really learning about the work that we're doing Um, Beyond that, I would say visit. Um, You know, we are open to the public. You can come and visit by reservation to our Nairobi nursery. We're open every day except Christmas. And you can come and you can see these elephants and watch them being hand cared for by the loving keepers that are there, learning about why they're there and uh, and what we're doing to ensure that they, they have a safe place in the future. So I would say come and visit, come experience the essence of an elephant for yourself. Um, come and stay at the lodges, see the work for yourself and really just embrace Kenya, Africa, and all its incredible glory to really understand and get a better, uh, you know, takeaway of, okay, this matters. Um, these lives matter. This habitat matters. I want to be a part of it. So I'd say come visit. You'll get it when you when you get here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just having that personal experience so that it's not sort of this, you know, just an idea in your mind, I think must be so powerful. I just wanted to also add too, you know, the other thing people can do is, is your, your, your carbon footprint does matter no matter where you are globally. And you kind of touched on this earlier as well. You, we can all do things at home that reduce our water consumption, reduce our, you know, our carbon emissions. Those things will translate to an overall healthy planet. So healthier planet. So I, I really encourage people that, you know, just because elephants aren't in your backyard doesn't mean that they don't still belong to the whole global community and we can all do our part to, to help them. Yeah, maybe it's time to start thinking about all wild spaces as part of our sort of, you know, figurative backyard. We're responsible for every piece of land on this earth as a global community. That's just the world we live in now. We're all connected. It's inevitable. So we might as well act like it. Um, And that actually brings me to my final question, which is just, you know, from where you sit, what do you think are the most impactful choices that an individual can make outside of supporting the, the Sheldrick Trust specifically, but just to protect you know, conservation efforts around the world to protect the preservation of these lands and, and these specific animals in Kenya. What do you think are some of those actions that you would recommend people understand and undertake to be part of the solution? You know, I think it's first mindset. Um, I think that, you know, understanding, I, I, like I said, I think when, when humans decide something is important to them and that it matters, unbelievable change becomes possible. So I would say first, it's Connecting with these types of causes, whether it's us or another cause cause that you care about, learning about them, and then sharing that passion and that concern with your own networks. I can't stress enough, particularly for any of your younger listeners, um, the younger generations, you know, you your stance on things does affect how your parents and grandparents see the world. You are the best ambassador for causes like this that need the younger generations to, to help support 
support because even though older generations might not, you know, be around to see what happens in 50 to 100 years, but maybe their grandkids will be. And I think it's really important that people understand that this is important to me and you to really take it on from a personal place and really become the ambassador for the causes that you care about. I think that's step one. Um, and sharing it within your networks. I, I always encourage people to follow along to our Instagrams and Facebook pages because we just have such a great way of, I think, telling stories that people can easily just reshare and really kind of help create more awareness, not just about the work that we're doing, but the issues that these wildlife are facing to begin with. So I think it's just that own your own engagement and then your own ability to represent causes that are important to you. And then on a daily basis, really thinking about the planet as a global community and that your actions do matter. And you can make small choices, small changes in what you're buying, the types of products you're buying, buying the types of businesses you're supporting, um, the consumption that you're, how, how are you consuming things? Can you do it in a way that is more friendly uh, to wildlife and to the planet. So those are the main things I think people can can really do. And it does make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Raising awareness and then taking responsibility for your impact every day. I think, yeah, it's those are the two biggest pieces to my mind as well. So perfect. Thanks so much, Melissa. I really appreciate your time today. And it's been really wonderful just learning more about the Sheldrick Trust and what you all are up to. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. I'm still blown away by what Melissa described as far as elephants adopting other elephants in the wild. I think this is such a beautiful image, and one I've never heard of before, where elephant herds are made up mostly or completely of orphans. The fact that elephants are emotionally mature enough to accept someone into their family from the outside because they see that that elephant needs somewhere to belong... I mean, that's something really special, I think, and I can't help but think about how much humans could learn from elephants. No member of their kind is ever left alone or abandoned. The herd always looks out for each other. What if people were more like this? Could you imagine? We see ourselves as the most advanced species on the planet, and of course we have abilities that the rest of the animal kingdom doesn't. But is it really advanced? to live and behave the way that we do? We pretend like we're not connected to the world around us, but what we're thankfully realizing more and more is that everything is connected, and it's time to become aware of this and allow it to inform everything we do in this world. And that's our first takeaway from today's conversation, what we call our changemakers, which we review every episode. Changemaker number one, we are all members of a global community, And if we act from that understanding, we can change the world. We have so much more in common with animals like elephants than we do differences. If we can stop seeing animals like elephants and others as different than us or separate from us, I think we'll begin to see our world as being made up of different members of a large community. There are different ways to live on this planet, and ours is just one of them. We'll start to recognize the connections that nature has built into how this world is designed, the way that animals like elephants help to maintain the balance in ecosystems so that other species can thrive, so that plants have what they need, so that other animals have what they need because of what elephants contribute. If we truly value every member of this global community, it will change the way we see the world, and we'll become more motivated than ever to preserve and protect the life on this planet. 
Because a healthy community is not made up of one species. Humans alone are not going to maintain the earth. We know that we can't without bees, without other wildlife. We can't do this by ourselves. The sooner we start acting from that understanding, the more recovery is possible. Changemaker number two. There are things we can learn from nature and the animal kingdom which could help us rethink our whole world for the better. There are a few things I think you notice about nature, if you look closely enough, that I think would have a huge impact if we could learn to adopt these things more and more at every level of how we operate our world, how we run our societies. The things I've noticed in nature that I wrote down to explore today are waste nothing, give as well as take, never take more than you need, and know your place in the bigger picture. If we wasted nothing, we would eliminate every waste problem we have, and we have a lot of waste problems. If we gave back to the earth as much as we took, we would automatically sustain the resources we need because we're making sure we don't deplete the earth and its resources as we go. If we only took what we needed to sustain ourselves and didn't take the amount that sustains our desire for profit or growth, we would not speed through these tools that the earth gives us to create everything we see around us. And if we recognize that we're just one piece of the puzzle in the balance of life on earth, I think we wouldn't act so blindly toward the first three things on this list. The natural world has so much to offer us as members of this global community, and the more we recognize that, the more we'll respect it and preserve it. Which takes us right to changemaker number three, our final for today. You can be an ambassador for the causes you care about. I love what Melissa shared about how incredible change is possible when humans care enough about something to take committed and consistent action to really do something about it. Take Dame Daphne Sheldrick as an example who created the Sheldrick Trust. She was an ambassador for her cause, to care for and preserve the lives of innocent wildlife, and her cause over time grew into one of the most well-known and effective conservation nonprofits in the world. What can you do to be the voice for a cause that you care deeply about right now? Can you engage on social media? Can you join a community group online or locally in person? Can you become a sustaining donor to a nonprofit you love whose mission you want to support? How can you become an ambassador for something that you really believe in? And remember, this matters. Poaching has pretty much halted in Kenya, largely due to the United States and China effectively banning the trade for ivory and rhino horn. But these governments didn't ban these markets on their own. People, citizens, people like you and me stood up and raised their voices, and now it's far less prevalent than it was. Our ability to change this world is as easy as our willingness to stand up with others and envision and then demand that change. Our challenge for you today is to adopt a species. Find a species that you love, that you want to see continue to thrive in the world, and familiarize yourself with their current status, what's contributing to any challenges they face, and take action to be part of the solution. My favorite animal has been the manatee since I was a kid, so I donate to a nonprofit in Florida who supports manatee conservation, protecting habitats, protecting the animals, ensuring that there are laws in place which disallow people from harming them. 
If you'd like to support our guest today, go to their website, sheldrickwildlifetrust.org, and consider a few ways to support. Number one, you can make a donation to support their efforts in the field to protect and raise orphans, to conserve habitats, and to ensure that poaching remains a thing of the past. You can also adopt an orphan to support their mission. As Melissa mentioned, this is $50 a year, which is a bargain for what you get back. I've done this a few times with the Sheldrick Trust. I would recommend it to anyone. It's definitely not one of those adopt it and forget it programs. You'll feel really connected to what they're doing. And also follow the Sheldrick Trust on social media. There's a reason they have almost a million followers on Instagram. Their content is amazing. And finally, share. Tell the Sheldrick Trust story. Talk to other people about what they're doing and why it matters. We say this often on our show, but one person, one community can make a huge difference. The people who are raising their voices today are tomorrow's Daphne Sheldricks. Find your cause. Plant your flag and make your voice heard to shape this world into a place we want to be 50 years from now. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd be so grateful if you'd share. Help to tell these stories of visionary people and organizations who are shaping the world into a place we can be proud of. Find us on social media at We Can Remake the World. Send us your thoughts, ideas, or organizations that you love. Reach out to us at podcast at We Can Remake the World anytime with ideas, feedback, things that you resonated with, things that you'd like to learn more about. And remember, try to find a few things today to be grateful for. Stay calm, stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.